This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Aparna Gopalan, and I'm going to be your host today. I had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Sai Balakrishnan, Assistant Professor of City and Urban Planning at UC Berkeley, about her thoroughly researched, lucidly narrated new book, Shareholder Cities, Land Transformations Along Urban Corridors in India. This book came out with the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2019 and examines the novel phenomenon of the conversion of agrarian landowners into urban shareholders in India's new emerging corridor cities. With its keen attention to the historical production of spatial unevenness and its textured ethnography of a crucial yet understudied topic in Indian social science, this book will be essential reading for geographers, anthropologists, historians, and urbanists working in South Asia and beyond. I had the pleasure of speaking with Sai just a few moments earlier. Here's the interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for being with us today, Sai. I'm so excited to talk to you about your book. Thank you, Aparna. Um, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Um, So my first question to you is, what brought you to work at this um, unique, unique intersection of urban planning and agrarian politics in contemporary Maharashtra? Yeah, so when I started uh, fieldwork in, um, started my doctoral research in 2008, um, India was in the throes of some of the most volatile land conflicts that the country had ever seen. Um, and um, uh, uh, these land conflicts were largely over the commodification of land, uh, the new processes of commodification of land. Um, largely precipitated um, by the economic liberalization reforms, which had been officially enacted in 1991. And uh, uh, and of course, a lot of these land conflicts were taking place within large cities like Delhi, Mumbai, Bengaluru, and there was fascinating work coming out of these cities. Uh, but, but to me, it was very interesting that there was, a, a, there was the emergence of a new site of land conflicts um, that had to do with urban land conflicts, and that was along these economic corridors. Uh, so, so the Indian government, the central government in 2001, as a flagship infrastructure development program, had launched these uh, really massive uh, economic corridor projects. So, of course, the most ambitious of these is the Delhi-Mumbai Industrial Corridor. And uh, the intent of the policymakers was that these economic corridors would be the spines 
along which uh, new globally competitive cities would be set up, uh, quote-unquote cities like uh, uh, SEZs, special economic zones, gated communities. Um, and of course, these were being set up on agricultural land. Um, these enclaves were being set up on agricultural land. Um, and to me, this was a fascinating new spatial form of urbanization um, because it really forces us to, um, to understand and theorize urbanization outside the territorial limits of the city. Um, and I think this is particularly important for um, countries in the global south, um, like India, South Africa, uh, because if you look at the Indian census, for instance, um, there are these really absurd, meaningless statistics that say that India is 32% urban, 33% urban. Um, but the way in which um, urbanization, the urban, is enumerated is only by looking at urban growth within the city. And so these census categories then completely miss out on these vast new frontiers of urbanization, which are actually outside the city, right? And these are the places that are seeing the most accelerated, the most conflictual um, urban growth. So, so, so to me, um, the, the research was really motivated by a new spatial form of urban change that I was witnessing when I started my doctoral research. Um, and I do have to, um, and I do have to acknowledge that the research is really the the book, the doctoral research, and then the book uh, is really situated um, and is 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 uh, very strongly inspired by um, a heterodox scholarship from both within agrarian and urban studies. So, so when I say that I'm interested in new spatial forms of urbanization that also incorporate agrarian change, uh, there is a longer tradition of this from within agrarian and urban studies. Neil Brenner's work on planetary urbanization, Gillian Hart's uh, seminal work on black townships um, in South Africa, which are these in-between spaces. Um, Meenu Tiwari and Sharachari's work on industrial clusters in India. So, so the research was largely inspired by this heterodox scholarship. So, so in many ways, what the research was trying to do as someone from within urban studies um, and planning is uh, trying to challenge these binaries of the city and the village because these new corridor regions uh, do not neatly fit within the categories of city and village. And the research was also trying to, uh, to challenge the inherited uh, disciplinary binaries of agrarian studies and urban studies. Great. Thank you for explaining. Um, and I think that leads into um, my next question, um, which is about the way you chose to tell the story that you did. So to understand your book, um, I think the first thing the listeners need to understand is the cast of characters that um, the book has. And um, actually, a key argument of your book seems to be that um, there is this often ignored cast of characters and people based in agrarian space um, who are essential in the story of understanding India's new urban corridors. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you introduce our listeners to these various groups um, like propertied sugar elites, marginal cultivators, private de- developers? Um, landless workers. Um, what is telling the story of urban corridors with the focus on these actors illuminate? Yeah, that's that's a really terrific um, 
um, a question. And um, I mean, there are a few interrelated um, um, questions here. So, right. So, perhaps I could just pass them out uh, a little bit and answer this um, um, in in parts. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is uh, yes, precisely that there is a heterodox. Uh, there is a very heterogeneous cast of characters that really cut across the agrarian and urban divide. Um, and to understand these urban enclaves uh, on former agricultural land, so you look at um, um, critical urban studies on on land markets, on real estate, for instance. It's focused on urban fractions of. Um, capital, right? The developers, the mortgage companies, um, the insurance companies, um, and it uh, completely elides um, agrarian propertied classes who are a key actor in India. So, so to me, one of the first puzzles that I was trying to address in this book is when you look, when, when you map out the most conflictual uh, uh, land conflicts along economic corridors in India, there's a very interesting spatial pattern that emerges because many of these, some of the most, most of these conflictual uh, uh, land processes uh, along the corridors are actually taking place on former green revolution lands, in former green mm. revolution regions. And, uh, and, and as many of you know, the green revolution was this massive agricultural modernization uh, program, program, uh, 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 propagated around the world under the auspices of uh, USAID, Food Foundation, other Western development agencies. In India, it had its own uh, history. It had its own trajectory um, um, starting in the early 1960s to solve uh, the crisis of India's food shortage. But to me, this was a very, very interesting puzzle, right? Because if you map out uh, the densest concentrations of SEZ, special economic zones, of gated communities, there's almost a neat territorial synchrony onto former Green Revolution regions. Um, and as scholars of the Green Revolution, like Francine Frankel, Barbara Harris-White, and others have shown in their uh, seminal studies, uh, the Green Revolution was an explicit strategy of uneven development. Um, mm. To solve the food crisis, the central government strategically selected certain regions at the expense of others, and it funneled these huge state subsidies in the form of water, irrigation canals, seeds and fertilizers into these regions. And so the Green Revolution regions really became sites of agrarian accumulation, uh, the, they became the sites where we saw the emergence of agrarian capitalist classes. And to me, it was very interesting that it's precisely these regions of prior agrarian accumulation that are now somehow ripe to leverage the gains of post-liberalization, urbanization. Right? So, so, so to understand um, how the Green Revolution is related uh, to post-liberalization urban enclaves, uh, it was necessary to bring in this cast of characters that cuts across the urban-rural divide. And one of the main, um, like I said, when you look at uh, critical urban studies on, uh, on land, on uh, real estate, uh, most of it coming out of uh, the experiences of Western cities, uh, agrarian classes rarely figure in any of these um, uh, uh, studies. And 
one of the main uh, protagonists in this book is uh, the dominant caste, what M.N. Srinivas called the dominant caste, what uh, Professor K. Balagopal called the provincial propertied classes. Uh, so when you look at the Green Revolution regions, there are regionally powerful agrarian elites, caste-based agrarian elites that emerged um, in these regions. And to me, another very, very interesting uh, uh, and important story to tell in this book is you can't have a presentist narrative of these urban enclaves on um, agricultural land. Right. So, so, so to understand the, the ur contemporary urban inequalities, the inequalities of these urban enclaves, you really have to historicize it and understand prior geographies of uh, prior uneven geographies of agrarian capitalism. So a big part of the, uh, of the narrative of the book was also to understand how certain middle peasants uh, from the late colonial period get transformed into an agrarian capitalist class and then into uh, an urban propertied and professional class. So this trajectory, uh, uh, which very much relies on caste, right? The intersection mm. of caste and class was a big part of the, uh, uh, of the narrative. Thank you. Um, that was very illuminating. Um, so following from that, uh, the beginning chapters of the book discuss another um, transition in a post-liberalization India, which is um, about the valuation of land. Mm. Um, you talk about how the basis for land valuation mm. in Maharashtra and across India um, has shifted from productivity to location. Mm. Um, so could you talk more about that shift? How did some land come to be more productive than other land to begin with? And how has the use of productivity for land valuation shifted to more towards location um, in the late 20th century? Yeah, so um, when, when you look at... Um, so, so one of the main arguments of the book um, is that land, of course, has no value. Uh, by itself, right? And it's um, infrastructural networks and it's the biased routing of infrastructural networks uh, that capitalize certain lands um, and devalorize other lands. So, uh, so, so to me, one of the most interesting um, aspects of working in um, Western Maharashtra is Western Maharashtra uh, today has um, some of the most prosperous urban enclaves. And these urban enclaves are located at the epicenter of the Green Revolution. Uh, Western Maharashtra has some of the uh, richest, most prosperous uh, sugarcane exporting uh, fields in, um, um, in, in the country. Um, India is the second largest exporter of sugar in the world after Brazil, and more than 40% of India's sugar exports come from Western Maharashtra. So this region mm. is really the epicenter of cash crop capitalism. But when you historicize um, the Western Maharashtra land markets, it's very interesting that in the late 19th century, uh, Western what, what is now Western Maharashtra was actually an arid scarcity zone. If you look at the atlases, for instance, like the agrarian and ecological atlas produced by Daniel Thorner and Chen in 1930, and they classify this area as a, um, uh, an arid scarcity zone. And yet, 
between the late 19th century to the 1970s, right, just over a period of 60 to 70 years, uh, this arid scarcity zone underwent this dramatic political ecological transformation and it got transformed into the epicenter of cash crop um, capitalism. Because those of you who know sugarcane, sugarcane is an extremely water-intensive crop. And mm. so I was very interested first in this political ecological uh, transformation. And this was largely a story, uh, it's a complex story that draws on uh, very contingent colonial politics of, of famines, of the middle peasantry being uh, the backbone of a rising anti-colonial nationalist movement, and also of um, a post-colonial politics of the Green Revolution, because this region really got uh, transformed into uh, um, uh, a sugarcane exporting region because of the routing of irrigation canals, um, because of the huge infusion of um, irrigation canals. And the main caste group uh, that captured these state subsidies of water in the form of irrigation canals were uh, the dominant caste, this agrarian property caste of the Maratha. And, and mm. so it's interesting because water then plays a major valorizing role in helping this middle peasant uh, class uh, uh, gain control, uh, economic and political control over the countryside through the capture of state subsidies in the form of water. And the capture of state subsidies in the form of water was uh, crucial because for agricultural land, uh, the main determinant of agricultural land is fertility and location, right? How fertile the land is which means that you need to have multi-cropping. There has to be an assured supply of water so that um, uh, you can grow these hybrid seeds, which were being distributed as part of the Green Revolution package. Um, and, and location, because of course, uh, proximity to the market is important. Um, and so for agricultural land, the main metric for agricultural, for valuing agricultural land is a combination of fertility and location. And uh, so you look, uh, so what I try to do in the book is, uh, you know, one way in which you can actually map agrarian social power uh, in agrarian India, for instance, Green Revolution India, is you can just map the routing of irrigation canals, right? And that gives you a very mm -hmm. neat mapping of social power. And it was during this period uh, through uh, socio-spatial uh, segregation that the Marathas, the agrarian propertied uh, class, uh, took control of the most irrigated, fertile agricultural land and uh, the unirrigated, quote unquote, waste land, right? The agriculturally unproductive land was relegated uh, to, uh, to uh, marginalized groups. Uh, in the Western Maharashtra case, cases that I'm looking at, particularly to the indigenous groups, the Adivasis. Now, with liberalization, there's a very interesting change that um, occurs because, of course, there's a retreat of the state from uh, agrarian uh, subsidies. Uh, so there are clearly processes of uh, de-agrarianization in India, agrarian distress. Um, and there are these new urban-oriented infrastructure projects like the economic corridors. So with the building of these economic corridors, of the SEZs and other forms of logistics infrastructures, the, the determinants of valuing land change. The most productive land, the most valuable land for the market 
uh, is no longer the combination of fertility and location, but location, location, location. So this gives rise uh, to some very, very um, interesting uh, dynamics because, uh, for instance, um, uh, you could have certain Adivasi lands, uh, uh, quote-unquote wastelands, which are owned by uh, Adivasis, which uh, were uh, fairly value, valueless just a couple of decades back. But now, because of their proximity to the economic corridor, these uh, advantageously located wastelands can fetch a higher market price than even the most disadvantageously located fertile land. Right, and so, so the 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 mapping of land ownership with social power is now getting uh, disrupted with the with the economic corridors, and this is something that I tried to particularly unpack by looking at uh, agrarian uh, caste class relations and the ways in which the Adivasis of advantageously located wasteland are now using the rising value of their land to really demand new entitled, uh, entitlements for themselves. Hmm. I think that's one of the most interesting shifts that you trace and one of the most unexpected. Um, but before getting into that, um, the central three chapters of your book all deal with um, different um, privately developed real estate enclaves mm-hmm. in the state mm-hmm. of Maharashtra. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's these three cases, Magarpata City, Lavasa, Lake City, and Kate City. Um, and there's a lot to say about you know your insights from the cases. But before we get into that, could you just describe um, these three cases and tell our listeners about Um, Yeah, what led you to choose them? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so perhaps, uh, so before I start with the three cases, yes. So the book is structured around uh, these three cases, but perhaps it might be helpful to just give a little bit of context uh, uh, to these three cases. Um, so um, Polani was a major um, um, intellectual influence for the book. Um, because what I was trying to track through the production of these enclaves, these three enclaves on agricultural land, is is really the the democratic market encounters uh, in post nineteen ninety one India, right? So so the economic corridors, uh, like I said, are a flagship infrastructure development program of the uh, uh, post liberalization Indian state. And the main intent of the economic corridors was that as these corridors pass through agricultural land, uh, they will transform agricultural land, which was uh, one of the most protected commodities under a state-led dirigist economy, into a transnational real estate market. Um, These enclaves were being set up, uh, private firms, there was a new mode of governance for these uh, private enclaves. Uh, 
because the traditional responsibilities of uh, local governments, for instance, water and sanitation, garbage removal, uh, these responsibilities were being taken over by uh, private firms. So in many ways, what you were seeing uh, with the economic liberalization reforms and uh, the, the production of these corridor regions was enclosure of agricultural land and privatization of urban space. Right, so 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 this would be what Polanyi calls uh, the market movement, the marketization of land. But what is very interesting is um, at precisely the same time, economic liberalization reforms were officially enacted in 1991. At precisely the same time, between 91 and 93, there's another set of reforms that are introduced by the central government, and that's the democratic decentralization reforms. And one of the uh, key institutions introduced by the 73rd Constitutional Amendment, the Rural Decentralization Laws, is the Gram Sabha. And the Gram Sabha is a key local democratic institution that I focus on in the book. Uh, the Gram Sabha, uh, the aspirational ideal of the Gram Sabha is that this would be uh, like a village legislature. Uh, if the Gram Panchayat, the rural local government has elected representatives and they're making decisions, any major decision, including a land use decision, has to gain the consent of the Gram Sabha. Right? So the Gram Sabha uh, is envisioned then as this new democratic space, local democratic space, that's really uh, allowing formally excluded uh, groups, including women, scheduled castes, scheduled tribes, to exercise their voice in public decision making. So, so in some ways, the Gram Sabha for me uh, 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 exemplifies a kind of a counter movement. So, so Polanyi's movement, counter movement, um, and these democratic market struggles uh, were, were central to the selection of these cases. So, in terms of these three cases, um, the first case is Magarpata City. Magarpata city uh, is located on um, fertile sugarcane fields. So in many ways, uh, Magarpata, the new enclaves which are being set up in this region, in this Western Maharashtra region, uh, exemplify agrarian privileges in an urbanizing context. Because the same kinds of agrarian caste networks that made um, a prosperous sugar cultivation possible and agrarian accumulation possible uh, during the Green Revolution are now being reproduced in this Magarpata region. Uh, but at the same time, um, to understand Magarpata, we also have to bring in uh, the Western Ghats region. Because as I said earlier, the Magarpata region, this Western Maharashtra region was actually an arid scarcity zone. And uh, the water that made this arid scarcity zone into a prosperous sugarcane exporting region actually came from the Western Ghats. So the Western Ghats is an ecologically uh, sensitive mountain range. It has some of the largest uh, rivers that water the Indian subcontinent, including the Krishna. And for this reason, it has uh, one of the highest densities of big dams in the country. And uh, uh, and and so one the, the the second case in the book Lavasa Lake City looks at how the Western Ghats region uh, went through a series of dispossession first agrarian dispossession due to big dam building 
and uh, now urban dispossession due to the building of large private enclaves um, such as Lavasa Lake City. And I argue that you cannot understand one without the other. You cannot understand Magarpata without bringing in Lavasa. The impoverishment of the Western Ghats region, the devaluation of the Western Ghats region was necessary for uh, uh, the prosperity of the Western Maharashtra region. So in some ways, if these two cases are about the reproduction of um, agrarian privileges and exclusions in an urbanizing context, the third case, which is uh, KED-SEZ, is very interesting because it's located uh, uh, both conceptually as well as physically between these two cases. So the KED region um, is not the epicenter of the Green Revolution, uh, but at the same time, it, it is fairly prosperous. It was not completely impoverished by the Green Revolution. And it's in this region where uh, the, the Gram Sabha was activated. The Gram Sabha was used by um, uh, formerly marginalized Adivasis to claim entitlements for themselves. And there is an unsettling, uh, there is an, a, a disruption of agrarian caste-based uh, power. So these three cases uh, uh, then very simply, I mean, one, one very simple way in which we, uh, I could frame this is what I was trying to do is you have the same economic corridor and the economic mm-hmm. corridor is passing through three varied agrarian property regimes. And these agrarian property regimes then shape the distributional outcomes of the urban uh, enclaves coming up along these economic corridors, right? So depending upon the prior agrarian property regime, uh, the same local democratic institution like the Gram Sabha is uh, variably, uh, variably mobilized in each of these cases. In one case, it is bypassed. In another case, it is co-opted. And in the third case, uh, it's actually activated uh, and functions as, as, as some sort of a quasi-public sphere. So what are the factors which lead to the activation of local democracy? Um, what do we, yeah, what, what are the factors which were missing in Magarpata and Lavasa and present in the Kade, um context? And then also what are the factors which um, silence local democracy, which um, were present in the first two cases and not in the third? Yeah, so... Um so it 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 depends on the balance of power in each of these um, agrarian property regimes. So in the, um, I mean, perhaps when I'm talking about the Gram Sabha, let me just um, uh, premise it by saying, um, uh, you know, on the one hand, when I am selecting the economic corridors as uh, as a new unit of analysis to understand agrarian urban capitalist change in India, uh, I'm also selecting the economic corridors because I'm saying uh, that is the new scale of capitalist accumulation in India, right? Um, and on the other hand, uh, the book really focuses on a local democratic institution like the Gram Sabha. So there, uh, a question then arises on the scale mismatch, right? Because the whole point of uh, the economic corridors is that they transgress local jurisdictional boundaries. How then can local democratic institutions like the Gram Sabha uh, uh, be effective 
as counter movements in Polanyan terms. So I just wanted to place that up front uh, and say that, uh, you know, of course, I'm aware that we shouldn't fetishize uh, the local, but at the same time, this scale of local governments is, is really one of the most uh, uh, powerful scales at which citizens interact with the state, right? And that's why the Gram Sabhas became um, uh, uh, are a very interesting um, counter-movement institution. So to your question precisely as to why they were variably uh, mobilized, um, in the, so land is a state subject in India, right? So a lot of these land use uh, changes, the decisions are actually taken uh, in the state legislature. The Gram Sabha is a local government, right? Um, so in cases where agrarian power is too entrenched, as in the case of Magarpatta, or in cases where agrarian power is too dispersed, as in the case of Lavasa, uh, it was possible for, um, the, for the capitalists to either co-opt or, uh, or bypass the uh, Gram Sabha completely. But, it was, but in, in most agrarian regions in India, power is fairly uh, dispersed. Um, like the Cade case. And so it becomes important for um, agrarian elites, even if the agrarian elites want to uh, benefit from urban real estate, uh, given uh, 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 electoral prospects, future electoral prospects, they have to figure out ways in which they can uh, uh, bring other constituents in the village together. And they also have to legitimize these urban projects. And so cases like Kid, um, where uh, power is more dispersed, are places where um, the Gram Sabha can be an effective uh, institution to, to, to resist this change, hmm. to resist capitalist change. Um, and in all of this, where is the um, transformation of landowners into urban shareholders? Um, you mentioned that um, these cities are or some of them are valorized because um, they have come up with this model of inclusive capitalism, which I'm assuming is referring to um, the way that people who whose land is um, acquired are given shares in these cities. So um, what is the impact of that, um, of that model of um, acquiring land and distributing power um, on democratic possibilities. Yeah. Um, so, of course, the classic example of this is um, Magarpata City, um, which is held up as this case of um, inclusive um, capitalism. Um, but, um, um, and, and you know, there's a very interesting narrative around Magarpata City uh, saying that um, these, uh, these farmers were entrepreneurial and that's the reason why these farmers were able to uh, pull themselves up by the bootstraps and make the transition to urban real estate. But what this narrative of entrepreneurialism, of course, obscures is the vast amount of state subsidies that go into uh, making these private enclaves possible. And it also uh, obscures uneven, um, unequal caste uh, power, which undergirds these, uh, uh, these urban enclaves. Um, the reason why um, the share the, the shareholder model um, uh, poses dangers is if you look at the Cade case, for instance, 
the kid SEZ is this in-between case that I spoke about. And it's a, it's a very interesting uh, case because there was this private firm, uh, Bharat Forge, which was uh, looking for land um, to set up this large special economic zone. And they had initially identified uh, fertile land in this cluster of villages, including Kanesar, which is uh, in the Mumbai-Pune, uh, uh, the shadow of the Mumbai-Pune corridor region. Um, when they identified this fertile land, uh, the main opposition came from uh, Maratha landowners. And the Maratha landowners uh, were very wary to give up their um, fertile agricultural land uh, because if the SEZ fails, uh, mm. then they've lost their only landed asset, right? And so they negotiated with a private firm mediated by revenue department bureaucrats who are, again, very, very important uh, actors. Um, so the agrarian uh, landowners, the Maratha agrarian landowners negotiated with the private firm and they decided to change the boundary of the SEZ to only include wasteland. Right? And I think this is a very, very important, this kind of local politics, the messy on the ground local politics is very important to understand because what the Maratha agrarian landowners were doing is they were actually, um, this was a counter movement, right, in Polanian terms. They were seeking to protect their fertile agricultural land uh, from the risks of the market and instead to give up wasteland. Uh, which which doesn't pose any risks to them. Um, and this is an important reminder going back to Polanyi because uh, Polanyi reminds us, you know, when we think about markets and counter movements, uh, it's not only the working class, it's not only the poor, those who stand to lose the most from marketization, who seek counter movements and who seek protection from the state, right? Very, uh, we have big instances, including 2008, where uh, it's the big capitalist classes, it's the big business groups who actually seek the protection of the state through counter movements. And that's what hap was happening in this Cade SEZ um, uh, uh, case. So, so once the boundaries of the SEZ had been redrawn to only include the wasteland, through histories of socio-spatial segregation going back to the Green Revolution, this wasteland was actually owned by an Adivasi group called the Thakars. Uh, but the, 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 the Thakars voted, right? Um, and mm -hmm. the Thakars uh, had electoral power. And so the agrarian property uh, classes could not, they, they needed to pacify the Thakars. And so there was a very innovative uh, new company which was formed where uh, Bharat Forge, as a private firm, owns a, a, a major chunk of the shares of the SEZ, but 15% of the shares are actually owned by the Thakars, depending on the land, that, the waste land that they gave up for the SEZ. Now, for many, this may seem, uh, this may seem to be a win-win situation because the Thakars are reaping the benefits of urbanization. They are getting dividends from this SEZ. Uh, but, the, uh, but, but the danger of this kind of a shareholding model is that it silences the voices of non-propertied constituents. Um, so in the Thakur settlement, uh, the titles in this particular region, the Thakurs have private property uh, rights. They have titles to their wasteland. 
and uh, the titles were held by the younger generation men. Um, most of the women uh, within the household were uh, uh, very unhappy uh, that their husbands had um, agreed to be a part of the SEZ uh, because this commodification and privatization of their wasteland now meant, for instance, that uh, they didn't have goats any longer. And with the inflationary market, uh, they didn't have milk to feed their children. Uh, senior citizens, uh, people in their 70s and 80s who were uh, uh, reliant on dairy cooperatives who had uh, livestock, they were also very un uh, unhappy because of the with the privatization of land. They had lost the only livelihood that uh, they were familiar with. And so all of these intra-household uh, inequalities got further exacerbated because the title was held by the ma uh, male uh, uh, head of household. Uh, but I also have to point out that this region that I looked at uh, in Western Maharashtra has a fairly low incidence of uh, landlessness. Right? But of course, you go to other regions in India that have uh, higher incidences of landlessness. And what you're actually perpetuating with this kind of shareholder city model is a form of property citizenship, right? that, that you have a voice in public decision making if you're a landowner. Mm -hmm. um so I, I guess what we usually typically, um, once we've taken up so much of an author's time, um, try to conclude the interview with the question of what is next. Now, I ask this question, of course, knowing full well um, the world we're living in and, you know, how what's next may very well be um, just some R&R. &R. Um, so what is next for you um, in terms of research, in terms of um you know teaching in terms of um yeah what's what's happening in the world yeah um yeah seriously i mean if there's one big lesson for a planner with this pandemic it's that you can't plan right you can only plan for uncertainty um so um you know after like um the the book came out last november and unfortunately um the pandemic hit um and for those of us in India, we've been witnessing um, a really uh, brutal uh, series of lockdowns. Um, and more people have died in India, uh, uh, more migrants, poor migrants uh, have mm. died in India because of the lockdown than they have due to the coronavirus. Um, um, it's, it's, so, uh, in terms of my uh, next research, let me just do it in two parts. I <clears throat> I recently, uh, just being a witness, I'm now in Bengaluru. I've been in Bengaluru since January. And just being a witness to this really brutal uh, migrant crisis, you know, when the lockdown was imposed in India, um, and of course, the prime minister decided to impose a lockdown for a country of 1.3 billion with four hours notice. Mm -hmm. Uh, when it was imposed, uh, urban migrant workers were locked within the city, right? They were kept mm. within the city uh, because the city boundaries had been sealed and district boundaries had also been sealed. And uh, within days, there were these really horrific, horrific uh, uh, media images that had started pouring in of migrants who were, uh, who had decided to walk back to their home villages on foot, right? Because mm -hmm. not only had the uh, 
uh, jurisdictional boundaries been sealed, but public transport had also been suspended. The railways had been suspended. Buses had public buses had been suspended, and so they would undertake. They decided to undertake these really treacherous journeys uh, on foot. And what was most uh, really poignant, horrifying, was the long distances that they had to travel. Right, because many of these migrants were uh, walking almost the breadth across the breadth of the country. They had come in search of work to the western part of the country, and now they were walking back to their home villages in the eastern part of the country. And to me, it uh, it helped me uh, understand the larger geographical implications of what I was trying to do in this book. Because the book, of course, looks at the overlap between uh, economic corridors and former green revolution regions in one part of India, in uh, western Maharashtra. But what became very evident with this, with the migrant crisis, is that all of the jobs, the urban jobs, the urban informal jobs, were concentrated in the western part of the, the western part of the country. Right? Mm. Uh, and these are the former green revolution regions. And these are also the regions with the largest number of SEZs. And it's very important to note here that um, SEZs, ports, all of these logistics enclaves were classified as essential services during the lockdown. And th- these capitalist activities continued to thrive. Right? Mm. So, so, so this is where the jobs are, the new capitalist informal exploitative jobs are. But the labor is being uh, exported or expelled from the eastern part of the country, right? And these are the bypassed, uh, these are the regions that were bypassed by the Green Revolution and that are now bypassed by capitalist organization. So in terms of future work, this is exactly what what, what I'd like to understand further um, on, on, this, on these geographies of uneven development and this spatial rift which which became very cruelly visible to us with the migrant crisis. Um, this is research. Uh, this is also part of research, a larger research work that I'm now doing with Arindam Datta at MIT. Uh, Arindam is a colonial era historian. Um, and of course, what I try to do in this book is I try to understand the relationship between uh, post-liberalization, urbanization, and the former Green Revolution region, right? But that raises the question as to why were these, why were certain regions strategically selected as green revolution regions? And for this, we actually have to go back to the colonial period and understand colonial era uh, public works, the geography of colonial era public works, including uh, famine protection works. So uh, colonial, uh, Arindam is a colonial era historian. And so we've, we've been working on this for two years and we hope to um, start writing a, a book a manuscript uh, next spring, which really looks at the new geographies, the new geographies of uneven development in India that very carefully look uh, tries to understand this concatenated series of uh, unequal infrastructural uh, developments from the late colonial period to the contemporary moment. Um, So that's in terms of uh, research. In terms of uh, classes, um, um, I'll be teaching an undergraduate course in Berkeley. It's a new course uh, which really looks at the new spatial forms of urbanization, right? Because I'm very interested in exploring with... uh, 
students not just on urbanization uh, uh, limited within the confines of the city, but really these new spatial forms uh, like corridor urbanization, uh, urban peripheries, uh, 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 and, and the new dispossessions across the agrarian urban divide. That sounds fascinating. And um, I can't wait to uh, see once it's out. Um, and yeah, these kinds of insights on the spatialization of inequality are so crucial in this time, um, perhaps right. more than ever ever before. So um, really looking forward to it. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and for answering questions about your wonderful book. And I wish you all the very best. Thank you, Aparna. Thank you so much for such an incisive set of questions.